people think about candid camera and what first comes to mind is a form of practical joke. But my dad's real passion was observing human nature. Second generation candid camera host Peter Funt. Today on Now I've Heard Everything, I'm Bill Thompson. When I was a kid, one of the TV shows that I most looked forward to every week was that Sunday night episode of Candid Camera. When the least expected, you're elected, you're the star today. Smile, you're on Candid Camera. With hidden cameras set up to catch their reactions, host Alan Funt played benign but often ingenious practical jokes on ordinary people. Candid Camera was a TV hit for years. But after Alan Funt's death in 1999 at age 84, his son Peter Funt, who had long been associated with the show, took over the family business, as it were, and continued the candid camera tradition. In 2013, Peter Funt published a collection of his essays, and that's when I had a chance to talk with him and get some inside scoop on the candid camera. So here now from 2013, Peter Funt. You are a gifted storyteller, my friend, a way with words that is just captivating. What was what was your overall intent with this book? My overall intent, very much like my dad and I did on Candid Camera for so many years, was to put the type of material, in this case on paper, in our previous uh, case uh, on television, the type of material that I enjoy myself. Uh, I like things in small, manageable bites. I read an awful lot, but I very rarely read novels, and I very rarely read hundreds of pages at a time, and I often admire the folks who do. But I like bite-sized pieces, and I think that works when you're eating dessert because <laughs> you'll uh, <laughs> stay healthier. And it works for me whether it's writing a newspaper column or the essays in this book. So I like to I like what I like, and I hope some other folks do too. Well, indeed, it strikes me you've always been the master of seeing uh, the individual little stones of life that, when you piece them all together and then take a step back, produce this rich, wonderful mosaic that is our country. It, now, is that a skill you had to learn, or is that something you think you were born with? It's probably a little of both. I. I was born with my dad's genes, and I don't know where he got that stuff, but it was certainly a big part of his life. And then I learned from him for so many years. I I actually started on Candid Camera. I first appeared on the air at age three. So uh, I really go way back. And, you know, people think about Candid Camera and what first comes to mind, understandably, is a form of practical joking. And there was some of that in the show for sure. But my dad's real passion was observing human nature and focusing in, as you said, on the little things that make us tick. Uh, and, and I share that passion. And I sometimes think we learn more about ourselves in, oh, the way we... Uh, deal with a broken parking meter, for example, mm -hmm. than in the way we deal with uh, our congressman or or the bigger things in our life that, frankly, are, are largely out of our control. We reveal ourselves in how we deal with the things we can control. Mm -hmm. And that's what fascinates me. <laughs> I'm reminded there are so many of the the 
bits that you and your dad did that I remember so well. It was Fanny Flagg sitting at a at a lunch counter with a hat that had a long feather in it that kept you know, getting in the guy's face next to her. Uh, <laughs> there was there was a guy who was who was standing on somebody's toe while he was supposedly taking a survey, and he didn't speak English <laughs> and he only spoke French. And the people who's People whose toes he was stepping on had to ask passersby, do you speak French? Tell us how to get off my foot. Little things like that. Now, you've got an essay in this book called The Jokes on Whom, and you address this whole Internet-driven fascination we seem to have nurtured now for pranking, but you also distinguish that from what you and your father did on Candid Camera. Yeah, these are reckless uh, times we live in because so many folks now have the tools uh, to, to pull some kind of hidden video prank, but they don't necessarily have the self-discipline mm-hmm. or the, the point of view that uh, my dad and I had, at least. Um, it, it's, a, it's a jungle out there. And uh, among the things I cited in that particular essay was this story last year about the uh, Australian DJs who pulled a prank on... Um, uh, Princess Kate, when she was uh, mm-hmm. in in the hospital at the early stages of her pregnancy, I, I, I'm sure you remember that story. It, it had a very sad ending because the nurse who took the phone call at the hospital in London and was very briefly pranked by these DJs went on a few days later to commit suicide. And there was a big, big uproar in the media and in social media about the culpability of these DJs in this horrible turn of events. And my position is that it's it is horribly regrettable. Uh, I'm not necessarily prepared to say they're very much at fault. Um, They were really practicing a very old-fashioned kind of pranking. Uh, I don't know about you, Bill, but as a kid, I used to do telephone jokes. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, you know, call up people and pretend to be something or order pizzas for folks at the dorm <laughs> who weren't expecting them, whatever. Mm-hmm. And the truth of the matter is, if you listen to the tape of this Australian DJ thing, it was really rather harmless I dare say it wasn't even very funny or well done. And the fact that it had such a horrible, horrible outcome, I think, was just totally unpredictable. Now, the big difference, of course, and I guess this gets to your earlier point, is that in this day and age, the pranks might not be very much different, but their viral nature, the ability to put things on the Internet and spread it around the world with such speed. From what I've read and heard from the family of this nurse, it was that explosion of international publicity that humiliated her to the point that she took her own life, not the prank itself. So it may be that we live in a time where the tools that people have at their disposal, that amateurs have, require much greater self-discipline and control than even was required for my dad and I back years ago. So how did Alan Funt and Peter Funt avoid humiliating people? That's coming up right after this short break.
now back to my 2013 interview with Peter Funt. Well, but in in his day, your father had to deal with this very newfangled thing called television, which was a much more personal, a much more warm medium, I guess they would say, than radio because it's so intimate. And he used it very, very discreetly, very, very humanely. Yeah. Let me tell you something. When he was at the zenith of his popularity, which was in the early and mid-1960s on CBS, there were a lot of people writing in major newspapers that Candid Camera was too cruel, mm. that, that it was harsh. And it was, in fact, that criticism, uh, few people know, it was that criticism that prompted him to coin his famous phrase that stuck to this day, smile, you're on Candid Camera, and to come up with a jingle for the show, a theme song that went along those lines. When the least expected, you're elected, you're the star today. Smile, you're on Candid Camera. To try to counter this, the idea that this was something you could smile about, it, it was not his intention to to make people look particularly foolish or uh, to carry a prank too far, certainly not by today's standards. It was rather to showcase the heroism, I dare say, of folks who could take a joke, respond under a little bit of pressure, smile about it. Um, that's really what Candid Camera was all about. And of course, remember, don't be surprised if sometime, somehow, someplace when you least expect it, some people step up to you and say, Smile! And on the rare occasions, and I mean one out of every thousand or two, where things went a little bit too far, no, we considered that a mistake, not mm -hmm. a success. Mm -hmm. No, I and and you're right. Those incidents were very few and far between. Now let me move on. I want to because uh, I want to get to a couple of the other essays in your book because you have 72 of them. Here. <laughs> <laughs> um, you got one called "Stuck in the Spin Cycle," and this is going to resonate with anyone who's frustrated that in this, the second decade of the 21st century, we're becoming less informed than we were a generation or two ago because the media are now so splintered. Who needs opposing viewpoints on anything? There's a blog, a radio talk show, a cable TV channel for every little niche of viewpoint. Yeah, it scares me because the type of information I enjoy the best is that which is edited, produced, and delivered by professionals who don't have a particular uh, bias or point of view. And if they do, they keep it to themselves. It's not part of their reporting. In this day and age, everything is spun. Uh, and if you plan your life correctly, it's, it's not how I do it, but if others do, they can uh, bookmark the blogs that only reinforce their opinion. They can listen to the TV and radio talk shows that are simply rubber stamps for their points of view. Um, they can read the magazines and papers. It can all be spun to uh, more so than to inform them, rather it reinforces the views they already have. You might say it provides talking points mm -hmm. uh, for the rest of their day. Uh, this is a distortion, and it's also 
a very uh, unhealthy or certainly unreasonable way to evaluate the information in our lives. True. Now, I also wanted to remind people that uh, in addition to you know the serious subjects of the day, uh, they will also find in this book um, kittens, raccoons, and even a crow. <laughs> I'll tell you briefly about the raccoons because this just drove me crazy. I, if you've never had a raccoon problem in your backyard, then you really have no idea what I'm complaining about. But if you have, then you know that a family of raccoons can attack a lawn. And the only way I can describe the damage is to say, imagine a three-foot-wide sardine can with the lid peeled back. <laughs> or, or imagine a, a huge prehistoric-sized golfer who could take a three-and-a-half-foot divot when he swung. Um why do I have these images? Because this is the type of stuff that I envisioned as I lay in bed each night worrying what was happening in the dark to my lawn that I'd discover the next morning. And there was a lot of rigmarole about how to get rid of these raccoons. You know, the guy at the hardware store, first thing he said was shoot them. And that is not my nature. <laughs> He suggested poisoning them, and, and that's equally unacceptable to me. And then he said, well, you could trap them. I thought, well, that, that's got a pleasing, humane <laughs> sound to it. Mm -hmm. And I bought from him this trap, and I can only describe it as saying, I sat next to a lady on a four-hour plane ride, and she had her little dog in a container that was far less plush than the raccoon trap this guy sold me. <laughs> this was the Hilton penthouse of, of <laughs> raccoon traps. And a long story short, I finally caught a few of these guys, and I was, for weeks, driving them across town about three miles away to release <laughs> them so they'd be far enough away that they wouldn't come back. But lo and behold, over time, they did keep coming back. And it was really driving me crazy. Finally, one morning, I'm three miles away from my house releasing a raccoon. And a guy drives up in a pickup and says, what are you doing? I said, I'm releasing this raccoon. He says, hey, I wish you wouldn't do that. We have our own raccoon problem. I said, gee, I'm sorry. He said, look, I have found a great place where I release my raccoons. Let me tell you where it is. And as he went on to tell his story, it finally dawned on me that the spot he was describing was a little less than two blocks from my house. <laughs> now, what was happening, apparently, was that I was trapping him and delivering him to him, and he was trapping him and delivering him back to me. Tell you one thing, if raccoons get their own app, you will see them smiling, because I swear to you, these raccoons are so smart that they not only do the damage they do, but they stand there and laugh at you about it. Peter Funt is 74 now. He writes a syndicated newspaper column, and he often speaks to business organizations using clips from Candid Camera in his presentation. And you can find easy Amazon links to Peter Funt's book, as well as video collections of Candid Camera episodes at our website, heardeverything.com. Would you do me a favor? If you liked today's episode, would you tell a friend about Now I've Heard Everything? 
We post new episodes here every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, and you can find us on all major podcast platforms. And thanks for listening. Next time on Now I've Heard Everything, he's got that reputation as an angry man, but I found that Lewis Black is actually kind of a sweet guy. My 2005 interview with Lewis Black. If you've been going to meet somebody and you think that you're going to be working with that person again, you don't tell that person to go do a few bad words. <laughs> you don't do that, okay? That's something that, that'll come back to watch you. <laughs> Apparently. That's next time on Now I've Heard Everything. I'm Bill Thompson. Bill Thompson.